Welcome to Still at Large, a series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will examine an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various police forces involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. The subject matter is not for young children or those with a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is advised. Episode 7 Michaela Haig, November 5th, 2001 At 7pm on November 5th, 2001, mother of one, Michaela Haig, climbed into a blue Ford Sierra in Bower Street, Sheffield. The driver was a white male, clean-shaven, and wearing a wedding ring. Bonfire night was another working night for Michaela. Prostitution had become her line of trade to make ends meet. The next time this delicately featured young woman, with almond-shaped eyes, dark brown hair, and an impish grin would be seen, she was semi-conscious and bleeding heavily from 19 stab wounds to her neck and back. Discovered by a friend in the Spitalfields area of Sheffield, Michaela was able to give a brief description of her attacker to the first policeman on the scene, PC Twig, who scribbled the description on the palm of his hand. Paramedics and then doctors battled to save her, but she succumbed to her injuries after three hours in the hospital. An extensive police operation began to find her killer, but sadly to no avail. Michaela Haig would become another murderer of a prostitute whose killer would continue to roam the streets of the United Kingdom. These women are vulnerable to attacks from predatory men. They live risky lifestyles and take enormous chances by climbing into strangers' cars night after night or allowing strangers to enter their property daily. The unsolved murder of prostitutes is a shameful stain on any society. In the United Kingdom, it has a long history. Most famous of all are the killings carried out in Whitechapel in 1888 by the figure known as Jack the Ripper. There has been much discussion of the cases linked to him, with five cases being firmly attributed the canonical five. Mary Ann Nicholl, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly. Personally, I have my doubts as to whether all five victims were by the same killer. Mary Jane Kelly's demise was a level of barbarity not seen in the other cases. It is strikingly different. Unfortunately, the years have added a layer of opacity to the case and it is highly unlikely that the true identity of the predator will ever be known. Sadly, the killing of prostitutes continues, and some of the murders continue to be unsolved. We'll briefly look at some of those cases, starting 100 years after the mayhem in Whitechapel. 18th of October, 1988. Linda Donaldson, 31. Linda had trained as a hairdresser, but following the breakup of her marriage, she became addicted to heroin and turned to prostitution. 
Her naked and mutilated body was found in a field near Launton, outside of Wigan. Her killer has never been caught. 1st of October, 1990. Gail Whitehouse, 23. A mother of two from Wolverhampton, Gail was strangled and left in bushes in Birmingham's red light district. Her friend Julie Anderson wrote on the Gone Too Soon Memorial website, Gail was a good, caring, loving mother and a good friend. Gail's life was cruelly cut short, a great loss, we felt, but carry Gail in our hearts. 1991. Maria Christina Requina, 26. Maria came from Manchester, and she was murdered in late 1991. Her body was dismembered with power tools before the parts were placed into bags and thrown into Pennington Flash, Lee. Her remains were found by two children whilst fishing. Her killer has never been caught. 1991. Diana McKinley, 23. Diana was found battered to death in Pollock Park, Glasgow. Her family knew she was taking drugs, but say that she was a loving and caring mother. Her injuries were so appalling that she could only be identified by her fingerprints. 1991. Janine Downs, 22, a mother of three from Wolverhampton. Janine was brutally murdered and her half-naked body left in a lay-by in Shropshire. Janine had turned to prostitution solely to feed her children. She is described as a lovely girl who would give you her last penny. 1991. Sharon Hall, 19, from Bristol. Sharon was found strangled in her luxury flat in Fulham, West London. Her mother had not known what her daughter did for a living. Sharon worked for the high-class escort agency, Diplomat. A number of very high-profile people were regular clients. Her killer remains at large. 1992. Yvonne Fit, 33. Yvonne was from Bradford and she was found in a shallow grave, bound and gagged. She was mum to an 11-year-old daughter. Yvonne had been missing for four months before she was found. The method of her murder remains unknown, and her killer remains at large. 20th of November, 1992. Natalie Pearman. Natalie was just 16 when she was found strangled at Ringland Hills, Norfolk. Police have looked at a possible link with Ipswich murderer Steve Wright, but concluded that it was unconnected. Her mum said she was 16, she was trying to earn a living the only way she could manage and didn't want to be dependent on the state. She was trying her best to survive life. She didn't deserve what happened to her. Her killer remains at large. 27th of March, 1993. Carol Clark, 32. Carol was from Bristol and she was found half naked in the Sharpness Canal. She had been with her boyfriend earlier in the evening before heading into the centre of Bristol to work the streets. Her body was found the following morning. She suffered a heart attack following a violent blow to her throat. 1993. Karen McGregor. Karen, 26 years old, was not found for days after she went missing. 
and then her battered and naked body was hidden in the Scottish Exhibition Centre car park, Glasgow. After an extensive trial against her husband, the verdict of not proven was returned. 1993. Mandy Duncan, 26. A mother of two who went missing and has never been found. Mandy had been working as a prostitute in Ipswich. During the police investigation into her disappearance, an anonymous death threat was found in her flat. 1994. Dawn Shields, 19, from Sheffield. Dawn was mum to a one-year-old boy, and she was found naked in a shallow grave at the Peak District beauty spot of Mam Tor by a National Trust warden. Dawn had been working her usual patch in the red light district of Sheffield. Her killer remains at large. 6th of August 1994 Julie Finley 23 years old from Liverpool. Julie was strangled and left in a carrot field near Skelmersdale, Lancashire. She was killed a few days after her 23rd birthday. Her parents family and friends deserve answers as to who killed her. 1995 Marjorie Roberts, 34 Marjorie was found in the River Clyde, not far from where Leona McGovern was discovered earlier that year. Her sister, Elizabeth, claims to know the identity of the killer, but says police are refusing to act. 24th of June 1996 Jackie Gallagher, 26. Jackie was found dead by a roadside in Glasgow. She had suffered multiple injuries. Her body was wrapped in an unusual homemade curtain. A jury returned a verdict of not proven at the trial of a suspect in 2004. 24th of September, 2000. 21-year-old Vicky Glass from Middlesbrough had been missing for two months before her naked and badly decomposed body was found in a stream near Danbury, North Yorkshire. Her mother, Debbie Goddard, said in 2010, It doesn't get any easier. I think and talk about her every day, and the pain never goes away. It has affected everyone. From day one, our lives changed totally. It's hard, and we take each day as it comes, but we will never give up hope of finding Vicky's killer. December 2000, Zoe Louise Parker was 24 and from London. Her torso was recovered from the River Thames, whilst the rest of her body has yet to be discovered. Zoe was an insecure young woman who lived a chaotic life. Heartbreakingly, she is described by her aunt as very naive, very gullible. If someone came across as being nice, that was it. She wanted to trust people. 13th of April, 2001. 19-year-old Rebecca Hall died from head injuries after a sustained, vicious and brutal beating. Becky, as she was known, was mother to a four-month-old boy at the time of her murder. Her naked body was left in a Bradford alley. Her killer remains at large. 29th of March, 2002. Michelle Bettles, 22. Michelle was seen on CCTV at 20 past 8 on the 28th of March on St Benedict Street, Norwich. The last reported sighting of her was in the early hours of the following morning. 
Michelle's body was found 20 miles from the red light district by the side of a country track in woods near Derham, Norfolk, three days later. Her father said, You just don't come to terms with it at all. It's like a story with no ending, continuing to go round and continuing to come back and haunt you. October 2002. Julie Dorset, 33, from Hackney. Julie went missing in 2002. In 2008, her skull and arm bones were found in a water tank at Low Hall Farm allotments in Walthamstow, North East London. Her former partner was tried several times for the killing, but he was eventually found not guilty on both a murder charge or a manslaughter charge. May 2005. Emma Caldwell, 27, from Glasgow, was reported missing after she left a hostel. A dog walker found her body in a ditch in Woodland in Lanarkshire a month after she disappeared. September 2005. Anne-Marie Foy, 46, from Liverpool. Mother of four and a grandmother, Anne Foy was savagely beaten, stamped on and strangled. In total, she had 62 injuries to her body, 21 of which were focused around her head and neck. She was left in undergrowth at the junction of Crown Street and Derby Street in the centre of Liverpool. These women had their lives taken away from them by acts of extreme violence. None of them deserved to be treated that way. The death of Emma Caldwell rekindled speculation of the presence of a serial killer stalking the streets of Glasgow, primarily due to the similarity of three of the cases. Police were quick to dismiss that speculation, although with seven murdered women in one town, it's easy to see why that would be considered. Three men did stand trial for the murder of Emma Caldwell, but the case collapsed following a lengthy period of surveillance which focused on a Turkish cafe. A Grampian police officer of Turkish descent stated that the recordings made by police showed that they were discussing the murder. However, experts for the defence stated that nothing of the sort had been discussed. In 2013, police were ordered to pay £100,000 to one of the accused following his detention prior to the case being dropped by the Crown Prosecution Service. In 2015, a reinvestigation of the case was ordered. It then transpired that detectives had secretly ordered phone data of whistleblowers to be seized. They had failed to get a judge's approval for the operation and had breached regulations five times in doing so. Some of the women on this list may well have fallen prey to other serial killers operating at the time. Peter Tobin and Steve Wright were at large during the time span of these killings and some of them do appear to have similarities with their known MOs. These are, unfortunately, only the unsolved murders. Over the same span of time, many, many more women have been killed, either by partners, clients or other women. In most of these cases, the women were battling for some form of addiction. However, the English collection of prostitutes states that sex workers are no more likely than any other industry sector to have battles with addiction. They state that most prostitutes are mothers working to support their families, and the number of women turning to prostitution 
is increasing due to ideological austerity imposed by successive conservative governments. The main line of the collective's approach to the sex industry is one of decriminalisation. They cite the example of New Zealand which decriminalised in 2003. A survey of sex workers said that they had additional employment, legal and health and safety rights. They argue that criminalisation increases the risk of violence but that few workers will report violence against them. This is Labour MP John MacDonald on the clause to criminalise clients in the House of Commons from the 4th of November 2014. I know for some members of this House, sex work is abhorrent. But I have to say, in all the years since I've convened some of the first meetings of the Ipswich Safety First campaign in this House, after the five women were killed, I have met a number of men and women who actually do not, uh, have not been coerced into sex work and do not want their livelihoods curtailed in the way that's being proposed by criminalising clients. It's true, I've also met many others who've been entered into prostitution to overcome economic disadvantage. They suffer poverty to enable them to pay the rent, put food on the, the table for the children. But that's made worse by welfare benefit cuts, escalating housing costs and energy bills. And I think the answer is not to criminalise any of their activities, but actually to tackle the underlying cause, which is to stop cutting welfare benefits, ensure they have an affordable roof over their heads and access to decent paid employment. Um, the whole issue has focused around this idea of if you can stop the client supply, somehow prostitution will disappear or the exploitation and trafficking will, and violent abuse will disappear. And the argument that the Swedish model has been put forward as an example, can I just say, on the briefings I've circulated, overwhelmingly, absolutely overwhelmingly, there's been opposition and criticisms of the, the Swedish model. And it's come from charities like SCOTPET, the Scottish Prostitute Education Project, funded by the state. It's come from the RCN, the nurses themselves, the network of sex worker projects. Again, government funded to try and get women and others off the game, nevertheless are saying this would be counterproductive. The academic research is that the Home Office itself is commissioned. I've circulated a letter with 30 academics from universities right the way around the country, basically saying this legislation is dangerous. And I have to say, we need to listen to sex workers themselves. The English Collective of Prostitutes, the Sex Hooker Open University, the Harlots Collective, the International Committee of the Rights of Sex Workers. Flamboyant names, but actually they do represent sex workers, all of which are opposed to the criminalisation of clients. Let me go through the others that we've listened to. Lawyers, the human rights bodies like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, UNAID, even the Women's Institute down in Hampshire, and I warn you, never cross the Women's Institute anywhere, and also those members of the Ipswich Safety First Coalition who dealt with the deaths those years ago. And what's the consensus? The consensus that is criminalising clients of Swedish legislation says no evidence either reduces client numbers or numbers of sex workers. And I quote, let me just finish this, I can quote at length, given the length of time we haven't got, I can quote at length from the Swedish government's own reports that has demonstrated that there's no correlation between the legislation they introduced and the reduction in clients or sex workers, certainly. Absolutely. said that they don't have evidence on that. That's quite true. But they did have evidence that the number of men who pay for sex in Sweden has gone down very significantly. Well, let me just answer that one. It was one survey 
where if men are being asked, do you pay for sex because you can be prosecuted for it, naturally said no. So the evidence itself was challenged. What is the other part of the consensus? This argued that other governments are now acting following the Swedish one. South Africa has rejected it. Scotland rejected it because they introduced the curb crawlings thing. In terms of France, the Senate now has actually rejected it on the basis of sex workers will be put at risk. And even Canada now, there's threats to legal action against it on that whole issue of safety and security of sex workers. The other consensus that's come out of these organisations is not only doesn't it doesn't work, it actually causes harm. And we know this because we undertook our own research through the Home Office 2005-2006. And what did that say? It said sex workers themselves are saying it means that we never have time to check out the clients in advance. We're rushed. We're pushed into the margins of society. And as a result of that, it does us harm. And there are alternatives. I don't recognise the view on the New Zealand uh, uh, um, proposal uh, implementation of decriminalisation that my honourable friend has said, because all the research is actually saying it is working. Who's saying that we should look at decriminalisation? The World Health Organisation, the UN Women's Group, UN AIDS. And actually, if you look at the letter I circulated from Nigel Richardson, who is not just a lawyer representing sex workers, but actually acts as a judge as well, he's saying there is existing laws that we can tackle abuse of sexual exploitation that way. So my conclusion is this. I appeal, to, I appeal to this House, do not rush to legislate in such a contested issue where there's such conflicting research, evidence and views. The current stance on contraception seems to be very muddle-headed. Currently, police are using the carrying of condoms as evidence of solicitation, and as a result, the number of sexually transmitted infections has increased especially in Scotland, where the police carried out a number of raids in 2013. As part of these raids, forfeiture of money occurs. A substantial percentage of the money goes to the force involved under the Proceeds of Crime Act. As the number of prostitutes increase, both street workers and those operating in illegal brothels, raids are increasing and convictions are increasing. A much more coherent approach is recommended by many prestigious organisations. Unfortunately, the government doesn't see it this way. It sees prostitution as a great moral ill, and in some ways that's understandable. But human sexuality is a deep and wide river that has curious little eddies and backwaters. Sometimes the sexual identity assumed within the confines of a monogamous relationship does not always suit the individuals involved. In short, there is no one-size-fits-all sexuality. Prostitution is sometimes called the oldest profession, and regardless of the legal measures any state authority tries to implement, there will always be sellers and buyers. A sensible approach would be that of harm reduction, but common sense and the law are often estranged. It seems that the current government has little appetite for harm reduction in practical ways, focusing more on ever greater prohibition of sexual activity, even amongst consenting adults. Until such time that prostitution is handled in a way as to actively reduce the harm and potential harm that people who take to the industry to make ends meet face, men will continue to murder these women. For the women and families mentioned before, there can be no closure or justice until their killers either turn themselves in or a partner comes forward to give them up and have them face the full mechanism of the law. Until that time, their murderers are very much 
still at large. It's important that if you have any information that you make contact with the relevant constabulary by dialing 101 or anonymously via Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111 0800 555 111 This is the last episode in the current series. I will be back at the end of January with series 2. May you all have a peaceful Christmas, Yule or winter break. Take care and be kind to each other. Some music was by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large was written, produced and presented by Desmond J. Brambley and is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. <laughs>